82, 82 even, of this uh, podcast we call Two Chairs Talking. My name is Perry Middlemas and I'm here as always with my literate friend, David Grigg. Hello, David. Hi, Perry. How's things with you? Not too bad. A little bit on the cold side, but uh, we've been having a lot of cold and wet weather. Lots of here. wet wet weather. You talk about a, a land of flooding plains. This is this is it, isn't it? This is definitely it. So, um, uh, luckily enough, uh, we've been okay where we are. We haven't had any floods. We've had uh, a fair amount of rain, but it's been steady. It hasn't been a real massive downpour, which for which I'm uh, eternally grateful. Uh, you get a so, bit of flooding uh, there, don't you? We do. I was sort of halfway up a hill and I've um, uh, tried to be doing a little bit of house maintenance in order to get things uh, into shape. And I've had a speak uh, or a discussion with my plumber who's given me a suggestion to go take to the council um, ah. to try and get some changes made to the drainage in the street. So that is something that I'm going to have to work on and work out uh, what, who I need to speak to and how I need to be able to go about doing that. But um, theoretically, it should be pretty easy. Well, not easy to do, but... Doable, uh, anyway. Well, yeah, there's just got a, just got a, just got a drainage point in the street that's just in the wrong place. Mm. And all it needs to do is be connected to the other side of a nature strip and then I'll be fine. Right. But good, anyway, good, we'll see how we go. Yeah. So it's that classic story... The idea, though, about, you know, as Mark Twain said, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. <laughs> That's right. uh, but not much we can do. So we're just going to have to sort of potter along and just see how we go. But otherwise, uh, are you keeping well? Yeah, oh, yeah, apart from that, I've had a, both of, my wife and I have had a very long running, cold, you know, not quite fluey type thing, but cold sort of thing. And we thought, could this be COVID? And we've had numerous. Uh, uh, you know, rapid antigen tests, and they all come up negative. So I figured, we figured it probably wasn't that, but it's still taking a while to shake off anyway, whatever it was. It's just some low-grade lurgy that's being so, around yeah. this yeah. cold and wet weather. Yeah. They just won't go away. That's right. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully you're on the improve. Yes, yeah, I think so. so. But occasionally I run out of breath when I'm talking. So if that happens today during the podcast, be aware. Well, we'll, we'll take a bit of a rest in, which, in, in that case. So... Um, We've got a bit of news, though, uh, since our last episode. Quite a bit. David. Quite a bit. Uh, do you want to lead us off? Uh, yes, we can talk about the, I think this is the inaugural Ursula Le Guin Prize. It uh, was awarded this year on uh, Ursula Le Guin's birthday. And it went to, I'm going to struggle to pronounce this, but I'll do my best, to the author was Khadija Abdallah Bajaba. And she won for her debut novel, The House of Rust, which sounds very interesting. A young character sets off in the company of a talking cat and a boat made of bones to mm. rescue her fisherman father. So that sounds, sounds really interesting. Uh, I was interested, too, that the, they had two runners-up, uh, one of which was How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nagamatsu, and the other one was The Past is Red by Catherine M. Valente, which was my favourite of the uh, novellas for this year's Hugo, Hugo's, but uh, it went nowhere. All right. OK. Yeah, it wasn't my favourite, but there we go. Different strokes for different yeah. folks. But, but uh, obviously anyway. I'm not alone in thinking it was pretty good because it came, it was nominated for, you know, given an honorary mention here, honourable mention here. Yep. OK. All right. Well, um the Booker Prize was uh, uh, handed out uh, 
just recently, about or sometime in about the middle of um, October, just yep. around about the time of our last uh, episode, I believe. Yep. And it went to the Seven Moons of Marley Almeida uh, by a Sri Lankan author by the name of Sheehan Kanetagalaka. Uh, and this is a uh, novel which is supernatural satire uh, set in uh, amid a murderous Sri Lankan civil war. Uh, it's been noted as having uh, some genre interest uh, because I believe that it is narrated by a dead person. Mm. So I uh, have to have a bit of a look at that. The Sri Lankans have um, been doing quite well lately with picking up the Booker Prize and also um, uh, uh, Abdul uh, Gunaratasia, we are picking up the um, uh, Nobel Prize, so um, that's useful. Mm. Good to hear. It's good to see that um, uh, some smallish countries, in terms of uh, publishing, are getting some good uh, good recognition for their the work that they're doing. Mm. Indeed. So then we roll on to the Shirley Jackson Awards. I'm a big Shirley Jackson fan, uh, though I haven't read all of her work by any means. So it was interesting that that came out. So where did it go? I've got the list here. The winner was of the novel category of the of the Shirley Jackson Awards was My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones. Uh, novella, best novella was Flowers for the Sea by Zin E. Rocklin. Um, I won't go through all the, all the, the categories, but uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I haven't read either of those or any of those. Anything that was... Got onto the list, but uh, there you go. Oh, yeah, well, I've read The um, Flowers of the Sea. Uh, it was okay. I didn't think um, massively of it. Uh, I'm interested in Stephen Graham Jones. I've read a couple of smaller things of his, and uh, My Heart as a Chainsaw is a great title. Mm. Uh, so uh, I think he's definitely one of those literate horror writers or psychological thriller writers uh, that's probably worthwhile um, having a bit of a look at mm. and uh, keeping an eye on. So I might have to try and track that one down. Yep. And as well as uh, those awards, we also had the winner of the 2022 Arthur C. Clarke Award for the Best SF Novel of the Year, which went to Deep Well o- Orcadia by Harry Josephine Giles. Now, I don't know anything about this particular book, but I believe that it is a verse novel. So that would be a first for um, the Arthur C. Clarke Award mm. and also first for any award uh, in the, the genre, I believe. So mm, not so sure. Would it be? Yeah, go on. I think so. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Well, better not make too many, too no, many sweeping no, some, gums. Someone will pick us up and tell us. Someone, you know, somebody, well, there's bound to be one that's out there that's wrong. But anyway... Uh, so that's that's interesting. Uh, yet yet another one that uh, we should have a look at at some point, David. Sure. And then we have some sad news: the death of Frank Drake. He was a radio astronomer and astrophysicist. He died at age ninety-two, and he's best known as a pioneer of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, he carried out the first search for signals from uh, other civilizations, which was called Project Ozma basically out of The Wizard of Oz, actually a character out of The Wizard of Oz, Princess Ozma. And, of course, he also came up with the famous or infamous Drake Equation, which is a a calculation which uh, supposed to give you an estimate of the number of extraterrestrial civilizations there might be in our galaxy. I say infamous because I think it's very flawed in many ways, but that's my personal opinion. So, yeah, that's sad sad to see him go.
Well, the interesting thing about that particular equation is it got people talking about it. Oh, that's true. As a, as a, as a subject for discussion, yes, very interesting. But as an actual calculation, I think it's uh, hopeless. Well, there's too many, uh, too many things that we know absolutely nothing about. Yeah. To, and we can't even make an estimate of them, really, no. because we've got no idea whatsoever. I mean, we know some of the first few terms these days. Like yeah. one, one of his terms in the original equation was the percentage of stars which have planets. Now, we now know from actual observation that the percentage of stars which have planets is pretty close to 100%. Yeah, um, but in the, in his day, it could have been as low as you know five percent or something like that. Yes, because they had absolutely no idea whatsoever. Mm. But yeah. yes, uh, at least the the search for the um, exoplanets has uh, helped along the discussion of that that part of it. But there's some of the others that there's just no way of being able to estimate. But at least what it does is it gives people the idea that you can't just go well. I reckon the number has got to be. Lick your finger, put it up there, yeah, and see yeah, which yeah. way the wind blows. No, I guess so. At least, at least this way, uh, he actually gave a number of terms to say, if you put all these together, well, then you can get an estimate. If you do, and you estimate things, and somebody goes, oh, I hadn't realised it could be quite that high. Um, my view is the number of um, uh, intelligent uh, extraterrestrial civilizations in the galaxy is. No, I wouldn't even say one, David. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. Um, uh, you know, there's that great, there's that great line. You know, uh, let's hope there's intelligent life out in the universe because there's bugger all down here on Earth. Yeah, true, true. Um, uh, so, uh, but uh, there's let's say let's say we're one. Uh, chances of there being a heck of a lot of others are pretty small. You know, there's everybody says, oh, aren't they listening into our radio waves? Well, the radio waves are only be going for what hundred years, and really, uh, mass broadcasting on a large scale with uh, uh, very strong equipment's really only been going since about the 1950s from America. So you're only talking about a sphere that's 70 light years uh, wide at the most. And um, uh, we don't think there's anything out there in that area. So basically, it's got a lot further to go. It, the galaxy's a big place. Yeah. I always say that the real question isn't how many civilizations are out there in the universe, other civilizations are out there in the universe. That's not the question. The question is, how far away is the nearest one? Because yeah. if the nearest one is in the next galaxy, then you're not going to have a conversation which, no. which lasts, you know, a million years per per answer and you know per question and response. Yeah, yeah. You're even even if they're a hundred years away, it's going to make things um, incredibly difficult to do anything. So sure. you might know they're out there, but is it going to make any difference? That's right. Well, might it might make some interesting bit to of know, a difference but psychologically, uh, but you know. Yeah, it would be interesting to know, but there we go. Anyway, so it's sad to see him go, 92. Yep. Um, he was a um, uh, an interesting man and uh, full of interesting ideas. Indeed. There we go. So I think we're done with all of the news now, David, and I think yep. it's probably best that we get on to the main topic of this particular episode, which is... The Hugo Time Machine. Hugo Time Machine, Perry, tell us about the year, which year are well, we talking about? Well, 1969 we're talking about for the Hugo Time Machine at the moment. So this is for works that were published in the calendar year of 1968. Now, the um, yeah, the Hugo Awards were presented at the 27th World Science Fiction Convention. St. Louis Con, or St. Louis Con, depending on how you want to pronounce it, um, it was uh, held in St. Louis, Missouri 
in the USA from 28th of July to the 1st of August 1969. The pro guest of honour was Jack Gorn, who was a, an artist, fan guest of honour, Eddie Jones, Toastmaster, Harlan Ellison. And the attendance was approximately 1,500. So it was sizable, but they were still sitting in around about that 1,500 mark. They didn't. It's going to take a little while yet for the numbers for the Wellcon to actually start blowing up uh, to get uh, much higher. So, um, uh, but we'll come across those uh, more, uh, uh, more bigger, bigger conventions as we get further on down the track. Yep. So we have four categories here. They stayed, uh, as we mentioned a couple of um, Hugo time machines ago, they changed to four categories. Uh, but uh, next year, in 1970, they go back to three again. Oh, interesting. Yeah, then they come back to four again a bit later on, but and then they settled into that. But at the moment, they're still not quite settled down to getting all of their categories in alignment. But at this time, in for the 1969 Hugos, they have four categories for the short story, the novelette, the novella, and novel. Now, as we've uh, mentioned before, the short story is basically um, up to 7,500 words. Uh, novelette, 7,500 to... I don't know, 15,000, uh, novella, 15,000, up to 40-odd thousand, and then above that is the novel. So, um, But you can't be necessarily 100% sure exactly what the word counts were because there are some uh, stories which are nominated in one particular category for the Hugo Awards but ended up in another category for the Nebula. So they hadn't really got their ducks in a row at, at, at this particular point. Pretty much okay, but not quite there. So anyway, the nominees, and I won't go through all of these particular nom nominees other than to discuss them um, at the end uh, when, I, when I get through all these, but the nominees for the short story were The Dance of the Changer and the Three by Terry Carr, The Steiger Effect by Betsy Curtis, Masks by Damon Knight, all the Myriad Ways by Larry Niven. And the winner for this particular category was The Beast That Shattered Love at the Heart of the World by Harlan Ellison from Galaxy, June 1968. Now, this particular story is one of um, Ellison's meditation on the nature of um, and form of evil. Uh, it's episodic. Um, and, and I suppose it's meant to be considered as a whole rather than a series of seemingly unrelated pieces strung together. Uh, but this is this is one of those stories that you either love, hate, or just totally indifferent to. Unfortunately, I fall into the third category here, um, and I don't particularly like this one very much. I think the best thing about it is the title. Uh, I gave this one 2.5 out of 5. I uh, would have much preferred um, Masks by Damon Knight uh, to have won this, because I think this is that's probably one of the best... Uh, all-time best robot stories, and I think that one would have been a better choice rather than um, the uh, Harlan Nelson story. But what did you think of that particular story, David? I think I fell into your second category of I hate it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I really didn't like it at all. I just thought, oh, really? Um, no, it just didn't appeal to me. As I was saying to you before we started recording, I've only ever read Harlan Nelson stories for the purposes of this podcast. And out of the several I've read so far, I've only ever liked one of them. 
which was um, pretty was it pretty Maggie pretty Money Maggie Money yeah, yeah. Um, which uh, I liked but all the others and that they do not do anything for me at all so all right. no I don't know not not too good okay well um, there were also uh, just to give you a, a bit of an indication of what other stuff was around in that particular year there were four. Nebula Award nominees that were not on the Hugo ballot, and they were The Planners by Kate Wilhelm, which actually won the um, uh, Nebula Award, but which I don't think is all that good a story, to be frank. Idiot's Mate by Robert Taylor, don't know it. Uh, Kyrie by Paul Anderson, and Sword Game H.H. H. Hollis. And there were also a couple of others that were uh, other possible short nominees. And these are taken from Joe Walton's Hugo uh, Hugo book, which we've mentioned previously. Uh, this is a series of... Uh, well, the, the book is based on a series of blog posts that she had on the tour.com uh, website where she made um, uh, some suggestions about what should have won in each particular year for the Hugo Awards. And then a number of people wrote in and sort of uh, gave suggestions as to what might possibly have been on the ballot and what might also have won in each of the particular categories. And so taken from that particular book, the other two that she mentions or are mentioned uh, by other people are Cage of Brass by Samuel R. Delaney and Corrida by Roger Zelazny. So if you think about this, we're seeing a lot of Zelazny, Delaney and Ellison uh, all the way through these particular uh, categories, and we'll keep seeing them a bit more often. Mm. But it's interesting to start seeing now uh, Larry Niven starting to put um, uh, starting to appear, and he starts coming up quite regularly over the next few years. Mm. Uh, so all in all, my view would be that Masks by Damon Knight would have been the one that I voted for for this particular category over the over the Harlan Ellison. Yeah, ab- absolutely, you know that's that's a very powerful story. It's, it's not so much a robot story. As, as a person who's had to be engineered into into being like a robot, and he's, all his all his uh, limbs and everything have been replaced by by metal, and uh, including his face. And uh, but the the real the real kicker of the story, which I remember reading very early on, can't have been when it first appeared in Playboy. I didn't use I didn't use to read Playboy, <laughs> but the, the the fact that he because he's now essentially essentially a robot, he has this this disgust. For living things, it's, it's a wonderful story. It really should have won, I think. Yeah, well, I've I've got it um, uh, in in my notes, and I've got the word robot in inverted commas. Yeah, true. Uh, because, because of that particular thing, but you could you could slot it into that category because uh, it does actually look at um, the psychological impact of having, um, as you say, uh, a person's body sort of slowly but surely removed mm. from them until they are, to all intents and purposes. A robot. It's a cyborg, I suppose, isn't that the right? Yeah, I suppose that's yeah, probably yeah, it. And yeah. so, if you want to put cyborgs and robots into the one category, this is um, one of the best of those particular stories. Sure. And I'd, I'd hardly recommend you read that. Yeah. I didn't mind all the myriad ways no, by it was uh, okay, uh, but, yeah. uh, Larry Niven. It's um, uh, it's in his known space series, um, mm, yeah. uh, the Dance of the Changer and the Three. No, nah, not really. And the Steiger Effect by Betsy Curtis. Oh, my God, that was just awful. I didn't read that. It was just a really minor analogue SF story. It really wasn't very good at all. So uh, that's where we are. Um, All right. I think we both agree that the wrong decision was made here. I I agree entirely. All right, let's move on to the best novelette category. 
and I'll read the uh, the nominees. They were, I'll go from the bottom to the top, Mother to the World by Richard Wilson, Getting Through University by Piers Anthony, Total Environment by Brian W. Aldiss, and The Sharing of Flesh by Paul Anderson. And I admit that the Paul Anderson is the only one of those I've read, so I'm not going to be able to do a, a comparison about them. But I'll, I will talk about The Sharing of Flesh anyway. So, I'm not sure I want to go to any huge length, but I'll, I'll try and get through it quickly. So, basically, the this, this story is is um, an expedition lands on this planet, which is a lost colony. It's been colonised by Earth, but it's been out of contact for many hundreds of years, and has reverted to a low level of civilization. And so, the main character, Evelith Sen, is the military technical expert to the colony. And her husband, Donnelly, is a scientist who's out in the field working with the more barbaric, barbaric tribes in the lowlands. Uh, he uh, isn't carrying any weapons, but he's wearing a body camera. And she's actually watching his video feed as he's led into the wilds by a native called Moru, who is partially crippled. Moru actually then kills the, this guy, cuts his throat and cuts up his body. And she's, hor- you know, the, she's watching this and is horrified. And she's determined to track this this uh, character down and ex- extract a bloody revenge, which apparently is her right by the laws of the this Allied Planets Federation, which is the which is sponsored this expedition. But the other scientists are trying to find out why this attack happened. Anyway, eventually, um, Evelith discovers that all of the the inhabitants of this planet, Locor, um, including the more civilized ones, practice a peculiar form of cannibalism. As part of a ritual, an adult male must be killed and eaten by young men who are on the verge of puberty in order to initiate them into adulthood. Uh, now, in the lowlands, bodies like this are acquired as a result of a lot of intertribal warfare and so on. But Moro, who's crippled, doesn't have a chance in such conflicts, which is why he tricked Eveleth's husband and killed him, seeing this as his only chance to get hold of an adult human body. Now, obviously, the members of the expedition are horrified by this practice and are determined to stamp it out so that the planet Locon can join the Federation. Meanwhile, they find this character, Moru, uh, along with his grisly haul of Donnelly's organs, which he begs them to give to his sons, uh, which the expedition obviously refuses to do. And then, knowing that Evelith wants him dead, Moro begs them to give his own body to his sons. He's obviously desperate that they can go through this cannibalism ritual. Anyway, all of this is eventually resolved when, based on a tip from Evelith, because she's been doing some research among the people herself, the scientists discover that there's a real physiological need for the ritual. There's some sort of genetic defect which has evolved. Without consuming adult male flesh, young men on this planet never successfully pass through puberty. Um, anyway, the ship scientists eventually come up with a medical fix for this, so that this doesn't need to, to happen in the future. But then they'll have to change people's habits and uh, perhaps change their their um, attitudes towards this ritual. Evelith, who's still looking for revenge, she's uh, she's actually has this character Mora brought to her for for her to kill him. But she has a last minute change of heart and she lets him go. She's because she. She was the one who discovered this knowledge about what the cause of the need for cannibalism was. And she, for several several hours, thought about not letting this information out. And she feels that was her revenge. So I thought it was an interesting 
story, but I'm not sure if there was any particular point he was trying to make it. What did you think of it, Perry? No, I thought the predict- the ending was fairly predictable. Yeah, yeah. As it was going along, you suddenly think, oh, yeah, I can see where this is going. This is, this is certainly one of those stories that you have a look at and you have to think of it as what impact would it have had back in the late 1960s and probably it would have had a lot more impact than it does now. I didn't think terribly much of this. I thought I thought this particular category, to be frank, was really poor. Mm. Um, uh, the oldest, uh, oldest I gave a three out of five. Getting through university by Piers Anthony, two point six, um, because it's one of his Dr. Dillingham uh, dentist um, stories. Uh, Dr. Dillingham is a um, a human dentist who's uh, called in on uh, on a uh, previous. Uh, story of uh, Piers Anthony's to work on a on an alien and work on the uh, do do some dental repair work for this alien and he gets chosen then to travel to the univer- galactic university of dentistry. <laughs> oh my god! Um, the Nebula winner was the Richard Wilson Mother to the World, and this was um, originally published in Damon Knight's anthology Orbit Three, which was uh, one of his series of original uh, story anthologies and generally the stuff there was pretty good uh, because he also had the Nebula um, uh, winner for the short story The Planners by his wife Kate Wilhelm in, in that particular anthology so it's, so it did pretty well but Knight uh, thought that Mother to the World was a deeply honest but more memorable and moving story well, my note is, I think he must have read a different draft to the one that I read because, <laughs> okay. well, I didn't get that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically a last man, last woman story um, in which the man spends the bulk of the story annoyed that he has to spend the, life, the rest of his life with a woman as dumb as this one. <laughs> and um, uh, she becomes mother to the world because uh, the child, the first child that she pre- uh, presents to him is um, quite intelligent. And that's it. That's <laughs> it, okay. Oh God! Mm. You know, you sort of think, I don't know, I don't know what's what's going on here. Uh, now there there were four Nebula Award nominees that were not on the Hugo ballot. They were Final Way by K. M. O'Donnell, The Gorilla Trees by H. H. Hollis, The Listeners by James E. Gunn. Now, The Listeners is supposed to be one of the classic science fiction stories, but I read it recently and uh, I was unimpressed. Mm-hmm. Um, Once there was a giant by Keith Laumer. And also taken from the Walton book about uh, the Hugos, uh, stories that might have appeared on the ballot but which didn't, High Weir by Samuel R. Delaney, don't know it, Time Considered as a Helix of Semi-Precious Stones. Now, this was originally published in New Worlds in December 1968, so under today's rules, it would have been eligible for the 1969 Hugo Award, but because um, a lot of the... Hugo voters would not have seen it. It was passed over until the next year, and I'm giving the game away here, David, but this story by um, Delaney won the Hugo and Nebula Awards in 1970 and should have won both of them in this one because it's by far and away a better story than anything else Mm. that's here um, in this particular category. Uh, And the... um, other possible novelette novel nominee was The Trouble with You Earth People by Kate Wilhelm. So Delaney should really have uh, picked up with this one much, much better than The Sharing of the Flesh, I can tell you, uh, or The Sharing of Flesh, uh, which I thought was meh. Okay. Yeah, it was pretty meh. Uh, pretty, pretty meh. That's about all you can say about it. So 
not really a great uh, category for this particular year. Uh, that Delaney just stands out way and above everything else. So moving to the novella, uh, we have another Delaney story. He seems to be in everything at the moment, as I said. Uh, he, the nominees for this particular category were Lines of Power by Samuel R. Delaney, Dragon Rider by Anne McCaffrey, and that won the Nebula Award for Best Novella, Hawk Among the Sparrows by Dean McLaughlin, um, and the winner, Night Wings by Robert Silverberg um, out of Galaxy September 1968. And this novella was also a finalist for the Nebula Award as well. It's This was the pick of my my stories for uh, on this ballot, and I would have... Uh, uh, I would have uh, voted for this one, uh, which is the first of these that's happened in this, in this set of stories. But anyway, um, in this particular story, Nightwings, Silverberg gives us a vision of a future Earth now in its third cycle, um, devoid of much technology and uh, whose population is organised into guilds. Uh, the main unnamed protagonist is a watcher a man charged with using his scientific equipment to scan the skies a number of times each day for signs of an alien invasion that has been foretold. Um, we meet him in the story as he arrives in the ancient city of Rum, R-O-U-M. So you can guess pretty much what that's the analogy of. Accompanied by a flyer, who's a biologically altered young woman whose flimsy wings allowed her to fly at night, and Gorman, a guildless changeling. Changeling. Now, Silverberg's prose here is really quite lyrical in nature and told from the point of view of the watcher. And his sentences flow smoothly and precisely through the story. It's almost as if he decided that he's writing from his own high level. It's sort of, and, and the story is reminiscent in many ways of, for me at least, of Miller's um, Cannibal for Leibowitz. Uh, he later went on to write two sequels to this particular story, also both novellas, which he then collected into one volume under the title Nightwings. And so people may have come across this particular story as the first part of that overall collection. Uh, it also reminded me a bit of Jack Fance's sort of style, uh, more fantasy, uh, post-apocalyptic. You're not quite sure exactly what's happened uh, to the world, uh, but people are just trying to find their way in the world, uh, working in groups or guilds. Uh, and I, I thought I thought this was pretty good. I enjoyed this. I know a lot of people um, have written about it and said they didn't really like it much, but I did. Uh, I liked it, and I gave it 4.2 out of 5. How did you go with it, David? Yeah, it was okay. Um, I, the only other um, work in this category which I read was the Samuel Delaney, which was okay. Yeah, I, I just didn't think much of the way it, it sort of ended up it's this guy's been watching for the alien invasion for for all his life, and uh, suddenly we, I'm going to give away spoilers. The, eventually, the you know at the end of this story, the alien invasion arrives, and then it's kind of like a so what? Yep. <laughs> it doesn't seem much much of the point of that. So yeah, it didn't do much for me. You, you, you sort of wonder whether he had written this as um, knowing that it was going to be the first third. Yeah, I'd be a, interested uh, to read the other stories because it did feel unfinished. You know, yeah. it did, did feel like you know, it just left us up in the air. You know, what's going to happen now that the aliens have invaded? Are they going to make things better? Are they going to make things worse? What are they going to do? You know, it's it's uh, it just it just didn't seem to resolve to me. Yeah, it sort of strikes me though that um, this may be. 
I wonder if this. I'm, I'm not a big aficionado of Silverberg's work, so I haven't read a lot of a lot of his stuff. I know my father was a big fan fan of him, but though I'm not terribly sure he would have liked this one very much. Um, the it seems that Silverberg here in the late '60s was moving away from uh, his basic science based science fiction and moving more into a sort of a lyrical uh, look at um, societies and how they interacted with each other. Uh, and uh, so there's maybe maybe this is um, where he's moving away from his earlier phases in his career. Mm. Uh, anyway, well, anyway, so look, uh, it was well, I thought I thought it was a very interesting story. And as you say, I probably should read the other two uh, novellas in the series to find out what um, what it's like. Lines of Power by Samuel R. Delaney. Yeah, yeah it wasn't, um, wasn't really. one of his best stories. No. no, Dragon Rider. I'm not really big dragon fan with this one, so I don't. I'm not. I haven't been reading any any of the Anne McCaffrey's. This is one of her Dragon Riders of Pern stories. Um, I really should basically go back and and read them to fill in the gaps of things that I don't know and see how we go. But as I said, that one, the Nebula, and a Hawk Among the Sparrows, is uh, sort of a it was well. That was also a, a finalist for the Nebula Award. That was sort of a almost a jokey um, uh, story about uh, Howard Farman, who's an American pilot in the late nineteen seventies, who's tasked with carrying out a high altitude reconnaissance flight, observing a French nuclear test. When he gets a little bit too close to the test and gets blown back to the First World War, <laughs> and he's and he's flying this massively modern aircraft that uh, he thinks he might be able to use to help the Allies win the First World War. But, of course, it's a complete fish out of water because he's got no fuel for it. He's got no ammunition for it. And the closest he can get for the for the aviation fuel, fuel that he uses is kerosene. And kerosene is in really short supply. And he's got to requisition just about every drop they've got to give him a, like, three-minute flight. Mm. Uh, but anyway, look, it was fun, but that was really about it. Um, now, the other ones that could possibly um, have appeared uh, on the ballot were The the Day Before Forever by uh, Keith Lambert. Well, these these three, uh, or three or four, no, sorry, I'll go start again. So there was only one Nebula Award nominee that wasn't on the Hugo ballot, and that was The Day Before Forever by Keith Lambert. And the other possible novella nominees taken from Walton's books book uh, are... A Tragedy of Errors by Paul Anderson and Grimm's Story by Verna Vinge. Mm. Vinge. So um, nothing here that really stands out and sort of says, you know, this is one of the all-time great novellas. Um, the Silverberg was, was pretty good, but that's about all. So to the novel, David, the big one. The big one. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, do you want to kick us off with uh, the first one of yours? I'll do that. Okay, so this is Samuel R. Delaney yet again. Nova. The book is set in the 31st century, in which mankind has spread through the nearby regions of the galaxy. Uh, when I say nearby, uh, as well as the regions nearest to the solar system, humans have colonised the Pleiades star cluster, which is over 400 light years from Earth. And uh, faster the light travel, of course, has made that possible. And we start in a bar on Neptune's moon Triton with a character everyone just calls Mouse. He's a gypsy, an orphan, an orphan and an itinerant worker. And like everyone else in the society, he's got neural sockets in his wrists and at the base of his spine, which let him control equipment of various kinds, including a starship. 
You can also play an instrument called a sensory syrinx, which can not only play music and other sounds, but generate images and smells. In the bar, Mouse is confronted by an old man called Dan, who seems to be blind. Like the ancient mariner with the wedding guest, Dan forces Mouse to listen to him while he tells his tale. Dan was on a trip with Locke Van Ray, approaching a star which went nova, or so he says, and Dan tried to see and hear what was happening through his connections to the ship's sensors. His own senses were totally overwhelmed by this and are now in a state of permanent stimulation, so he's all but blind. All he can see is the glare of the exploding star, and he's all but deaf because all he hears is the star's death rattle. And Mouse eventually manages to pull away from Dan, but it's not long before he encounters Captain Von Ray himself, who's recruiting for an expedition. Uh, Mouse needs a job, so he signs up with a bunch of other crew. So it appears that Von Ray's heading for, off for another Nova, and we find out that he believes it's possible to plunge into the heart of an exploding star and find a precious material, Illyrion, which is incredibly rare, available only in micrograms, but a pinch of it can fuel a starship or melt the heart of a moon. It's uh, The Illyrian, if you like, is Von Ray's holy grail, but he's no Parsifal. We then get a long flashback to Von Ray's childhood, the Von Rays based in the Pleiades are trying to free their region from the control of Earth and implicitly from, implicitly from the Red Shift Corporation who have a near monopoly of building starship drives. So as a child and then as a teenager, Locke Von Ray comes into contact with Prince and Ruby Red, the children of Aaron Red who runs Red Shift. Prince was born with only one arm and has had it replaced with a powerful robotic prosthetic. Ruby is exceptionally beautiful and young Locke falls in love with her, at which point Prince attacks Locke with his metal arm and badly mutilates his face, setting up a lifelong feud. But now in the present day, if, if Locke can obtain enough Illyrian, he can destroy the Red Shift monopoly and transform the galactic economy. But his motives to do that are wholly personal. Locke wants to bring Prince down as an act of revenge and to free Ruby Red from her brother's malign influence so that she's free to be with Locke, of course. But in this, he badly misunderstands her. So a lot of the story is told from the point of view of Mouse and his friend Caton, who's a young man who's well-educated and who's thinking about writing a novel at this period, which is an archaic form of art. And we get a fair bit of exposition from Caton explaining things, how things work patiently to Mouse. There are also other members of the crew, uh, including Ty, who tells fortunes using tarot cards. And Delaney makes out that this is uh, no longer a sort of, a, you know, a nonsense at all. But uh, yeah, I wasn't sure about any of that. And then the rest of the novel really details the expedition to a star expected to go Nova uh, while being pursued and harassed by Prince and Ruby Red. There are a number of very violent confrontations between the enemies as the quest goes on. And the result is always in doubt. Look, I really like this. I remember liking it a lot when I first re read it in my late teens, and I enjoyed it just as much on a second read. I just like Delaney's style, and he can also tell a pretty engaging tale. I, yeah, I liked it. I probably would have voted for this, um, possibly as the, the best novel. We'll see. Hmm. Okay. What do you think? No, it's not not one that I've read as yet. I've still got to get to this one. Right. Uh, it was the only one on the on the list that I didn't get to. Right. Uh, as is always the case, there's oh, always it's, one. It's hard to get there. through them all. Yeah. Well, it is. It's hard to sort of fit all that in with everything else that you're trying to read sure. as well. So that was the one I missed out on. But um, all right. uh, at least it's quite short. It's only yeah, it's not a long pages. 
which as we'll um, discover as we go further down into this discussion of the novels on this ballot, isn't always the, the case. No. Okay, so I'll move on to mine, and my first one that I'm dealing with, and that's Past Master by R.A. Lafferty. In the far future, Earth has been nearly abandoned and humankind has migrated to a small number of planets in nearby solar systems. On one of these, called uh, Astrobe, an attempt at building a utopian society is in danger of collapse, and all attempts to install a leader to fix the problem have failed. It seems that, for whatever reason, they've decided that they must have a leader in order to be able to um, run this particular society. So the leaders that are there... None of them are ever any terribly good, but there's three of them that are uh, sort of working as a triumvirate to make sure that they can keep the society ticking over. These three leaders decided to snatch Sir Thomas More from history uh, because he's been chosen for his honesty and legal and moral sense. And they want to snatch him shortly before his death uh, so that uh, it doesn't make any major changes to the the real timeline. And so this novel then explores Moore's attempts to come to terms with the Astro Society and basically jump to, uh, you know, sort of heavily into the future and work out what the heck's going on. And it also documents his conflicts with the planet's leaders who thought it would be easy to manipulate. So the one thing that you're not told early on is that uh, they think that Moore's going to be a bit of a pushover, but of course he's anything but that uh, when he actually gets there. Um, now, there are hints here of Cordwainer Smith in terms of its style and its setup with the strange humid hybrids and, and stranger mechanoids that populate this particular world. And I'm sure Lafferty, as he was writing this, this book, met this novel as a commentary on the whole concept of Utopia um, and a discussion of Moore's novel of the same name, Utopia. But if that's the case, then I'm completely over my head because I couldn't see how anything was going on here. It just seemed like there was interminable, interminable discussions leading absolutely nowhere and just going round and round in circles and not obtain, not going it, just nothing happening. <laughs> uh, just they're moving from one place to another and they get there and they talk about something else and mm. another concept and you think, oh God, just get on with it. Now, this was originally, this particular story was originally written in 1964 and it was then recast as a short story uh, which editor Terry Carr commented uh, was attempting to too much for a story of that length, which which it would have been. It was then rewritten as a novel. Uh, Carr accepted it, though he demanded a number of um, rewrites and uh, and changes because uh, he considered it contained stilted dialogue and too many expositions. Well, he didn't get rid of enough of them. He didn't get rid of enough of them, no. as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I don't really think Lafferty rewrote anywhere near enough. Uh, uh, that he should have. Lafferty's far, far better at the shorter length. Oh, He's yeah. got a very quirky style and a very quirky sense of humour, which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. This one just doesn't, in my view. I just, I really struggled to get through this. It was a real slog, um, in my view, to get through this particular book. Uh, and I just, I just don't think it works. No. Um, I don't, there was, there was nothing much here of interest. I mean, you uh, Lafferty fans are going to come out of the woodwork and basically beat me over the head here and say, oh, no, it's absolutely fantastic. It's so funny. Oh, well, I didn't get any jokes at all, and I didn't think it was funny in one one little bit. No. Uh, so I didn't like this one much. No, though. well, they can beat me over the head too because I hated it. Too. I just like, oh, right, okay. My, my notes say I found this a very tedious read, which didn't oh, seem yeah. to go anywhere interesting. That just about sums it up. The, so. uh, the, other, the other thing which lost me really was the depiction of um, 
Thomas More as a a past master, as a fundamentally honest man. Uh, Having read Hilary Hilary Mantel's uh, series of books about the Tudor era, I don't think that's actually a very accurate (laughs) depiction of Thomas More. So, yeah, that that lists me as well. So, yeah, no, I I hated it. (laughs) It was really not my cup of tea. Didn't like it at all. So, there we go. Um, My next book is The Rite of Passage by Alexei Panchin. And this book won the Nebula Award for Best Novel in 1969. So it won the Nebula. And I honestly find that amazing (laughs) because I didn't like it much. Well, it was interesting. I'll I'll give it that. Um, But I mean, in the Nebulas, it beat out novels such as Stand on Zanzibar, which we'll find out uh, did much better in the Here Goes. Uh, Also uh, on the list for the Nebulas was Black Easter by James Blish, which is a terrific dark piece of fantasy. And Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick, on which the movie Blade Runner was based. To my mind, it's nowhere near as as those other books. So I don't know what the nebula people were thinking. Anyway, never mind. So Rife of Passage is is at heart the simple coming-of-age story of its first-person protagonist, Mia Havero. She's growing up on board a huge interstellar voyaging ship which has been carved out of an asteroid. However, there doesn't seem to be much point to this travelling from system to system to me because humanity has established many viable colonies in these other stellar systems and all the ship and the others like it do is travel between them and trade for resources they need. So I'm not sure why they need to travel. Earth has apparently been destroyed, but we're never told how or why. That seems to have been something to do with overpopulation. And I'll come to that back to that topic shortly. I thought the novel was very slow in its development as we follow Mia's growing up years. I mean, admittedly, he, he does a good job of creating this, this uh, likeable and, inter- and interesting character, young young girl growing up into uh, adulthood. Uh, so he, he, does, he good, does a good job of that. And we do find out through her eyes what the sh- life on the ship is like. And we discover that after children reach the age of 14, they're subjected to a trial in capital, with a capital T, which can sometimes result in the child's death. Only those who survive the trial are considered to be adults. This trial, we eventually learn, involves the child being dropped alone on one of the colony worlds with a minimum of gear and left to fend for themselves for a month. If they survive, they send a signal to a scout ship, which then picks them up. If no such signal is sent, it's assumed that the child has died or become incapacitated and no rescue missions are ever sent. So in all of that, there's something unpleasantly reminiscent, I thought, of the books and philosophy of Robert Heinlein, particularly his books for young adults, such as his 1955 novel, Tunnel in the Sky. Mia, though, in this book, is a much more sympathetic, credible and interesting character than any character Heinlein ever wrote. Spare yourself and don't even try Heinlein's Podcade of Mars, which similarly has a young female first-person narrator, but it's awful. Anyway, after Mia's own trial, she eventually does start to question the ship's attitude to the colonists, who she starts out by calling by the derogatory term mud eaters, as do most people on board. But you know, because you know almost right from the start that this trial is coming up, oh, oh, it's just this long prelude to that that just becomes very tedious. You, you keep wanting to, you're sort of fidgeting and saying, I want him to hurry up and get onto the action. But that only actually happens in the last 25% of the book. Everything up until then is just Mia's preparation, uh, along with her fellow children in the same age group. 
And when we finally get to it, Mai's experiences during her trial on this planet called Tintura are interesting and action-filled enough. She's attacked and her weapon and other gear stolen and a precious signal signaling device is destroyed. But, however, she is treated very kindly by an old man whose own daughter is dead and her feelings towards the mud-eaters start to shift and she starts to see some of them, at least, as, as people. But then we get to the epilogue of the book. After Mia and some, but not all of the children, uh, experiencing trial, survive and return to the, sh- to the ship. I thought the epilogue was very troubling because the ship people, um, the people on board the ship, have a horror of free birthers who don't control their populations. Obviously, on board a ship, given the limited space and resources, uncontrolled population growth would be a disaster. But the shipboard people extend this fear to the colony worlds as well. Mir and the other survivors testify that the Tinterans allow free birth and also practice a form of slavery, using the planet's native hominids for forced labour. The horror of free birth, much more than the slavery, is enough to make an assembly of the shipboard people decide to utterly destroy the colony world, which as yet only has a few million inhabitants. Nevertheless, they're talking about killing off a few million people. Mia and many of the others who've uh, who've, uh, who've been on the planet vote against it, but they're totally outvoted and the destruction goes ahead. This is where I feel that Mia and her boyfriend Jimmy, who both feel the same way, should have made a much stronger stand against this moral outrage. She's, She's learned to see the colonists as people like herself, and yet she allows their mass murder without any real protest, even protest to her own father, who's the council chairman. So... Interesting, well-written, engaging female protagonist, which is very good for the time. I want to like it a lot more, but I still can't. I still can't recommend it. I say it just it ends up feeling very, very uncla- uncomfortable towards the end. What did you think? Yeah, I I tend to to agree with just about everything you said there, and I think I get I get very I get very, find it very weird that they have these trials and to send kids off knowing that there's a fair chance they're going to die and they're not really going to help them. Yeah, they give them some training up front, but basically if anything goes wrong, they don't go in to try and get them out. Um, and, you know, the destruction of two million people, oh, yeah, well, okay, they're free birthers, therefore they don't deserve it, yeah, therefore yeah, we can exactly, kill them. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. I mean, talk about... No, nah, talk about a sort of... A fascist way of looking at the yeah, well, life in genocide, the, uni- the, the universe. <laughs> no, simple, it's, yeah. It is genocide, yeah. and it's just, just it's just awful. And you don't really know whether they're going to kill off the the, the native hominids either, which you probably are going to. Oh, imagine so I think they blow up the whole planet. Blow up the whole planet. I mean, who gives them the right to do that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, for one thing, and who gives? You know, why can't they just basically say, "Well, let them go, mm. let them let them stew in their own juices"? We we figured out what happened with us. We can work it out. But the whole idea of sending your 13 and 14-year-old kids off at a trial like this, this is the sort of YA dystopia stuff that seems to be really common um, these days with um, Hunger Games and all that sort of stuff where all these young kids are sent off to, you know, trials to the death, you know, and it's just it's just shocking. Yeah. I mean, it does go back to Heinlein. They say Heinlein wrote several books which are along those lines, really, that, you know, yeah. just throw people, kids in at the deep end and let them see if they float. Yeah, well... Well, that's okay if you've got lots of kids, but you know, if you don't, uh, what happens if you lose the whole lot? Mm. If you lose the whole lot in one uh, in one particular uh, batch, you're going to suddenly going to find out that you don't really have a lot of kids coming through, especially if you're controlling them and you're only allowed to have one kid 
one or two kids per couple, you're really going to start, uh, go, really going to struggle. So I don't know. No, I, I don't, I'm like you. I, this is really a YA book in a lot of ways. That's the way it would be marketed now. Mm. I have no idea how it won the Nebula Award. I really don't. No, I don't. I mean, somebody said, oh, it was written in response to Heinlein's Juveniles, and people gave it because of that. Well, it seems like a fairly shoddy little reason to be able to give a major award to a novel just for that. Yeah. Because there's not really a lot going on here, in my view. No. It's quite obvious about uh, where it's all going to end up. And frankly, I've, I've read it a couple of times over the years, and I remembered, remembered reading it uh, back... Uh, in the early mid seventies, didn't like it then. Didn't like it that much this time. No, there you go. I mean, I can see that it's competently written, but why it won? I've got no idea. No, me neither. No, I just don't get it. All right, so moving on to um, my next one, the Goblin Reservation by Clifford D. Simak. Uh, this is a weird little book. It really is. In the far future, Earth has been transformed into a university planet. Creatures from all over the galaxy come to learn and teach. Uh, travel between the galaxy's worlds is conducted by a form of matter transmitter. So think of an updated way station by Cliff Ack, uh, Clifford Simak. His sort of transport system. So, you know, you're basically uh, taken from one particular place and your body's destroyed, but it appears over there in the destination. Now, academic Peter Maxwell arrives back on Earth after a long trip. I only discover, discover that everybody thinks he's dead. They've actually had a funeral for him. Um, and his friends just, just just assumed that he's gone. Um, something seems to have malfunctioned in, in the matter transmission process, causing a duplicate, uh, one that uh, arrived back on Earth a couple of weeks or three weeks before, uh, and who was later killed. So he's basically floating around when he first turns up, and for a little while, nobody believes he's actually who he says he is because, of course, he's dead. Uh, then when he goes to uh, go back into his apartment, he finds out that it's already been relet, so he can't get in there, and he doesn't really know what he's going to do. Um, but he does want to know what happened uh, to um, uh, to his other body. I mean, he's alive, but he wants to know what happens to his sort of duplicate, his doppelganger, if you like. And so he sets out to um, investigate the causes of of that, that particular death. But he's also trying to negotiate, which is what his job was previously, to negotiate the purchase of um, an object which is called the Artifact, uh, which is a monolith on display on Earth that may be used to contain vast knowledge from an alien race that survived the transition from the previous universe to this one. Um, also looking to make the purchase is an alien race called the Wheelers, uh, which are really a hive mind comprising a mass of insects in a ball attached to two rotating wheels. <laughs> sort of a hive mind, fantastic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that uh, it's just, Simak's got some wonderful, wonderful <laughs> bits and pieces in, in this in this particular story. There's a ghost that floats around, um, uh, who's actually is a ghost, uh, but uh, he, he floats around. Uh, there's a uh, Neanderthal, Called Ali Oop, uh, who uh, uh, has been bought bought from uh, the Neanderthal times up into uh, far future Earth, and absolutely loves it there. Especially loves the beer, uh, but uh, likes to um, cook over open fire, which all of all of, all of uh, Ali Oop's friends think is really something special. Um, uh, now, in in the background of all this thing that's going on, uh, the Time University, as as it's referred to on Earth, 
um, is mounting a series of prestigious lectures from William Shakespeare himself. So they've basically gone back in time and snatched him out of time and brought him through to the future so he can give lectures on his own plays uh, and uh, decide the, with the idea just to decide whether or not he really did write the plays. Probably not a bad idea, but, you know, all in all, it's just a bit of a joke sitting around in the background. So this is a completely over-the-top science fiction novel featured all of um, uh, Semak's themes as well as his love of invental, inventive and faintly ridiculous um, uh, situations uh, as, as well as the Neanderthal and the ghost there's goblins and there's a um, uh, the woman that's moved into uh, Maxwell's flat's got a saber-toothed tiger uh, who acts as a pet um, so the whole thing is completely and utterly absurd but Somehow or other, Simex seems to pull it off. Uh, he seems to get the whole thing to come together in the end, and I really quite enjoyed this. I didn't think I was going to. I thought, you know, as it started off, I thought, oh, no, this isn't going to work out terribly well. Then it slowly starts coming together, and it's just all these weird characters floating around, and you just go with the flow, and it just it just seems to hang together quite well. I, I enjoyed this. Yeah, it, it, it's quite entertaining, isn't it? But, but nevertheless, it's... It... As you say, it's over the top. There's just too many disparate elements in it. You know, you've got alien civilizations, ancient, ancient, uh, you know, artifacts. You've got matter transmission. You've got duplication of human beings. You've got all these legendary beasts, beings like goblins and trolls and uh, ghosts and all the rest of it. But, it's just... but as you say, still somehow he manages to pull it together. So it's yeah, it's pretty entertaining. It's certainly not his best book, but it's entertaining enough. Yeah, I mean, this is the uh, the fun piece uh, here. I mean, it's light and humorous, and uh, he's not really attempting to try and do terribly much. He's not. He's certainly not trying to um, write a you know, great novel the way that uh, Lafferty may well have been. Uh, but he succeeds in doing what he sets out to do to entertain and um, uh, have a good time and tell a good story. And it's just just an enjoyable novel. That's all. Sure, sure. So that's all right. I enjoyed it. All right. So now we move on to the winner of the Hugo for for this year for 1969, which was John Brunner's Stand on Zanzibar. Now, it's a very long book, so I'm tr- I've tried not to make well, my, my, my... My paperback version is 570 pages. Yeah, yeah. Well, I read an e-book version. It just seemed to last forever. But uh, yeah, so I'll try not to make my review uh, an equal length, but we'll see. I'll have to talk about a fair bit of stuff, so we'll go. Okay, so there's no doubt that it's an ambitious book. Um, Brunner attempts to create a, a kind of wide-reaching picture of a near, near-term near future Earth. Well, you know, near-term future when it was written, because uh, it's set in 2010, which of course is now in our past. But apart from a few details here and there, the book really hasn't dated very much, I didn't think, and it could be read today with just as much interest uh, as when it was first published in 1968. So the book is composed of what we might call a collage of many different threads, you know, quotations from fictional books, news sites, glimpses of different people's lives, all woven together into, into a whole. In Brunner's vision, concerns about overpopulation are dominant in 2010, Obviously, overpopulation was a strong fear in in the, the late 60s. Paul Ehrlich's book, uh, The Population Explosion, was about that sort of time, I think, yeah. Yes, I think it was, yeah. 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 So his, his prediction of a world with a human population of 7 billion people and still growing is spot on, which is what our population is now. Though our response to that fact has been very different to what Brunner imagined. In his world, America has implemented strict laws about who's permitted to have children, 
laws which vary from state to state, but which are all aimed at prohibiting people with genetic defects to have children in case they pass on these defective genes to their offspring. Now, the list of conditions which exclude people from having children varies from place to place, but in each state the list is growing longer and longer and targets more and more minor conditions, now including colour blindness. Desperate would-be parents travel to more permissive states or leave the country altogether or break the law and suffer the consequences. And though all this probably sounded fantastic in 1968, it's hard to avoid the comparison with today's real-life prohibitions of abortion in today's America. The future world, which Brunner conjures up from back in 1968, there's many points of contact with the real world of today, of 2022. Marijuana is legal in most states, for example, and sold by companies which once sold cigarettes. Mass shootings or incidents of domestic terrorism are common and increasing carried out by individuals Brunner calls muckers, short for those who have run amok. And then uh, at one point a character visits the city of Detroit and talks about how eerie the place is. Oh, those abandoned factories. None of that is too far from the modern reality of that place. There are a host of minor characters, but the main thrust of the story follows two men. One is a Caucasian, Donald Hogan, who at the start of the book has been recruited by the CIA as an information analyst and who spends most of his time in libraries reviewing a host of material looking for patterns and connections. By the way, Brunner didn't foresee the internet because uh, all this research that uh, Hogan does in libraries and uh, this talk of um, being able to ring up on a phone and get the results of an encyclopedia, but it's by phone, not through, through anything uh, computer-based. Anyway, this is his research task until he's activated and forced to take on a much more aggressive role by infiltrating a country which is claiming an unlikely genetic breakthrough which will cure inherited diseases before birth. There's quite a good spy thriller type plot which develops along with Hogan's story. The second major character is a man called Norman Niblick House, uh, an African-American, or Afram as the book has it, who is an executive in a large, huge conglomerate called General Technics or GT. General Technics owns the world's most powerful supercomputer, cooled by liquid helium. It's called Shalmaneza. Norman House gets deeply involved in a project to develop an African nation called Benina, which has somehow managed to survive despite the legacies of a period of colonialism and aggressive neighbours. But there's something odd about this success, which is revealed only very later on in the book. These two men start out as housemates, and their stories diverge widely through the middle part of the book, but then unexpectedly come together again at the end. There's definitely some things about the book to criticise. There's a strong misogynist streak in the novel. I can't think of any strong female characters in it. There's only one unpleasant, mindless socialite called Guinevere Steele, who specialises in humiliating people at her frequent parties, and Georgette Talon Buckfast, the cranky elderly head of General Technics, who dies halfway through the book. And the two main characters continually talk of their girlfriends, usually temporary girlfriends, with a dismissive term of shiggies, as do several of the minor male characters. But that aside, uh, if we are allowed to put that aside, Brunner, I think, overall does a magnificent job of creating a believable future world, which is, is the book's full of interest, and it uh, you know has also some very interesting interesting strands of plot, I thought. So, yeah, I, I liked it. I, I, yeah, I think it was a probably a pretty uh, deserving winner of the Hugo that year. What, what was your impression? Uh, yeah, I tend to agree. But as, as you say, it becomes really obvious as you're going through that there are no female characters of any 
any form whatsoever. They're basically all throwaways, sex, sex objects, mm. or so they're either very high up or very low down. There's no middle level for them, and um, they're all just prancing around, uh, just acting as well, basically sex objects for the for the male characters in um, in most of the situations. So that's hard to hard to get past. Uh, but otherwise, he does actually do a pretty damn good job of um, uh, bringing all these threads together, and he's got some, he's got an interesting story sitting in the middle of it. It just takes a while for it to all start coming together, because as we said, this is a very long book, and it uh, has got a lot of threads. Uh, different parts of the novel uh, that are all sort of uh, put together under the one um, sort of thread heading, uh, giving you details about various things that are happening in the world. Um, Sometimes you'll get uh, some short sort of anecdotes about some characters that uh, have already appeared in the story but don't appear again or about characters that are going to appear later on. Uh, so you get a bit of a background to the whole thing. Supposedly, he had based uh, his technique here on uh, the um, USA trilogy written by John Dos Passos in the 1930s. Uh, I haven't read that, so I don't know. Uh, but it's got echoes... Well, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's um, Ministry for the Future has got echoes of this sort of style of, um, of writing. Uh, or in the way of... Not so much style of writing, but in the way that the all the information in the novel is presented to you, the reader. Mm. So sometimes it's cut up into various yep. points of view. Uh, there is a lot of different points of view um, uh, threads in this, and you have to... I wouldn't recommend you reading it and putting it down for a while and coming back a week later. I no, think no. you'll be completely lost. You have to actually stay with this all the way right through. Uh, you may need to... Um, uh, make notes about who who's who and which particular um, in which particular thread, so that you know what what threads yeah, relate I, I, to what. That was a problem for me. I, I felt I needed a, a list of person, you know, dramatis personae to to keep track of who was who, because I kept coming across new names and thinking, you know, where who was uh, this person again? Who was this person again? Yeah, yeah. yeah so I, even even with the book, which basically lists all of the um, uh, in, in the contents page, oh, okay. it actually it actually lists all of the the threads and puts them all together and has all the uh, the contents um, under uh, the threads of context, the happening world, tracking with close ups uh, and continuity, and it lists them. As, as they come up and tells you that this is this is the order that you can read them in. So you can almost read each of those different threads almost in one slab, but then you wouldn't get the close connections because, as you say, the threads all come together near the end and you need to basically be able to follow it. Uh, it's a big, hefty book. It takes a while to read. It's fairly dense. He's built up quite a large uh, history of... Uh, the Chinese-American conflict that's going on. Uh, so he also also pushes pushes the um, uh, the way that China has become a very major superpower in the world, and that they seem to be the one that are causing most conflicts with uh, uh, with with the US. Uh, and he's got a lot of very very interesting predictions that he's made here. But as you say, he misses some, but he's going to miss some. So. You can't, you can't expect he's going to get the whole lot right. No, no. 
But all in all, I think he does a pretty good job. Uh, I think it's probably the best of the books that were there on the list. Although, as you said, you really like Nova, mm. so I've, I haven't read that, so I'd have to go back and have a look at that and see how it was going. But of the books that are there, it's the best of, the, of those. Now, the other ones that could possibly have appeared were, as you said, Black Easter, mm. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, The Master of Time, and Picnic on Paradise, all of which were on the Nebula ballot, but which didn't, weren't on the Hugo ballot. And one that was missed out of the whole lot was Parvain, uh, oh, Keith, Keith Roberts, Roberts. Mm. which is a, um, uh, an alternate history, um, as I recall, novel. And uh, But it's been a long time since I've read that. Yes, yeah, a long was, time since uh, I read it. But that was, but that was pretty good. And I think that may well have um, pushed Stan on Zanzibar. Mm, it's quite a short book, though. Um, and it I, is. I think it's made up of short pieces. It's like a fix-up story. If yeah, I it is. I, th- I think it's um, a series of novelettes all stuck mm, together. Yeah, so probably um, that would probably count against it. It possibly might have. But anyway, this particular book, Stan on Zanzibar, um, I think it's it sort of sits in with a, another couple of other thematic books that he did like this uh, Sheep Look Up and Jagged Orbit, uh, which he published after this. But it, Stand on Zanzibar itself is a uh, quite a um, uh, change in direction for science fiction. There would be nothing that had been done like this up until this particular time. And so you could see that uh, when it appeared, it would come across as being something completely out of the ordinary. And because it was well-written, Swept everything before hmm. it, except in the nebulas, who basically. No. Why, why, yeah, why would you write a passage? Why would you put I, it I, above I, this? And it's I, crazy. I, I don't. I really just do no. not understand that at all. No. That's one of those aberrations that you look at, and everybody, everybody says, "Oh, you know, that the nebula's there for style, and and um, the Hugo's there as a uh, people's choice." Well, I think it's completely around the wrong way um, for this particular time because uh, Brunner's got everything you need here it's a it's a decent decent novel it's got a heck of a lot of extra um pieces in it uh the concept of the way that it's put together is uh, quite astounding for its time and you can't really see how anybody could have read this and decided oh no this wasn't as good as rite of passage i just don't no, understand that at all no. doesn't make any sense to no. me so an interesting an interesting year, David, and I can see that looking back, you can start to see changes that are occurring um, in terms of who's been nominated for the Hugo Awards. You know, as I said earlier, you're getting Delaney turning up in just about every category, Ellison occurring in the, uh, the shorter shorter lengths, uh, Zelazny popping up here and there, uh, Kate Wilhelm being around uh, the area. Uh, and so it's just... It just strikes me that we're at that time of science fiction where it was moving away. The, this new wave that had come in and um, from around about 66, 67 was still sweeping over um, the work that was being produced uh, in the genre in 1968. And you can still see a lot of, uh, of, of its influences here. And those influences are just going to keep on growing and keep on going all the way through. The, the, the literary quant- content... Is actually increasing, not 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 in every situation, but in, especially in the winner, you can see that um, uh, an attempt has been an attempt has been made here to do something completely different, and from that perspective, it deserves a heck of a lot of praise. And I think that the science fiction field was basically saying, 
yeah, it's time to move away from this, that straight, pulpish, um, you know, one-threaded one novel. Let's start doing things with a little bit more, um, a little bit more oomph. The stuff that uh, was being uh, tried uh, and experimented with in the short fiction seems to be rolling now more into the novels. And so you're starting to get uh, a lot more things and objects of interest coming up in the novel category. Uh, and for... Uh, for me, I'm quite grateful that that's happening. Mm. I mean, there's still some that you read them and you go, "What? The, how the hell did this get yeah. get nominated?" I just don't understand it. That's still happening. A lot of, but a lot of it uh, with these awards where you have readers that are nominating, a lot of it is popularity contest. Yeah, it is. Yeah, um, you know, who do I know that uh, I met at the local uh, science fiction convention who seemed like a nice bloke? Because most of them are blokes. There's still very few women uh, that are being um, uh, nominated here, but uh, that is slowly changing, but it doesn't really get massively changed until, well, well into the 2000s. But you're just getting the odd one or two women popping up here and there, but when they do, they're pretty damn good, except for the one woman who appeared in the uh, short story uh, category. The Steiger Effect. Oh, the Steiger Effect by Betsy Curtis. That was awful. <laughs> it was just a very, very weak story, and um, uh, I don't, I don't understand why that why that was nominated. But it's also interesting to see the change in the source material of where stuff is coming from. Uh, Analog, uh, while it gets uh, one or two stories here and there getting nominated, they're falling away. Campbell's influence is not anywhere near what it was back in the uh, late 50s and early 60s. Uh, And it's people like Fred Pohl and uh, Terry Carr and other uh, Damon Knight and other editors of that sort, of, that sort, who are looking for more literate works uh, to come through, and so that's good. Mm. That's a um, it's a good thing for the genre. Yeah, indeed. So, other awards that were handed out uh, that particular year. So, the best dramatic presentation, two thousand one, A Space Odyssey. Oh yes, of course. As you understand, best professional magazine was Fantasy and Science Fiction, edited by um, uh, uh, Edward L. Furman. Yeah, and that. Makes sense to me. I mean, from the bits that I have read in the late 60s, uh, fantasy and science fiction or Galaxy were, or If Magazine uh, were the best best, best ones going. Best professional artist was Jack Gorn, who was the professional guest of honour at this particular convention. Best fanzine, Science Fiction Review, edited by Richard E. Guys. Best fan writer, Harry Warner Jr. And best fan artist, Vaughan Baudet. So that was uh, the... Uh, awards, uh, as you can see, there's um, there's still a number of Hugo Awards uh, that were being presented in uh, 1969, but nowhere near as many as there are now, mm, David. That's right. Nowhere near as many. And that's about it for the Hugo Time Machine for 1969. Um, we will be dealing with uh, uh, 1970, dealing for stories that were published in 1969 at uh, sometime, probably next year. Sometime next year. Sometime next year. We've uh, only got a couple of more episodes to go before we have our annual end-of-year break and then come back with our uh, uh, best-ofs for uh, 2022. And so it will be sometime after that that we get to the next uh, Hugo Time Machine. But I'm looking forward to that because a couple of the stories there are some of my all-time favourites. So we will uh, give people plenty of notice about what's happening with that. So we're just about done for this episode then, David. Um, next one. Next one. Next one. Could be interesting. Do you want to 
Do you want to talk about uh, what we're going to do next time? Well, we, we've been very grateful to Australian publisher, one of Australia's best publishers, you might say, Text Publishing, who have uh, sent us some uh, review copies of books. And we we're going to talk we're going to talk about uh, a couple of the books they've sent us, which are new releases by Robbie Arnott, uh, who wrote uh, The Rain Heron, and by Gary Disher, who's one of our favourite crime authors. So we'll be talking about that and perhaps a little more as well. Hmm, we might have a special guest that Indeed. might be with us. We'll see how that see how, uh, that, see how that goes. Mm. All right, David, I think we're about done. Yep. It's been interesting. You've um, sometimes a bit tedious reading some of these particular stories, but uh, we've made our way through them uh, and we can only look forward to what's lying ahead. And with that note, we'll see you in three three weeks. weeks, See you then. See you then. Bye.